Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we are here today to continue our series on sonnets with episode five of Sonnet Week, closing out National Poetry Month 2021. And this episode, we've spent a lot of time talking about what makes a sonnet and the kind of classical subject matter that sonnets cover, which for a long time in the early years of the sonnet was not entirely, but a lot of it was about love and particularly a courtly version of love that uh, was, uh, you know, unrequited and da, 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 da. We're, we're moving beyond all that. We're going beyond love because uh you can kiss love goodbye folks yeah and that kiss is the last love that love's gonna get yeah no more love here this is this is mortal combat now <laughs> you gotta take the sonnet into the sonoctagon or whatever i don't know do they fight in octagons in that game i don't really know how it works well it's a two-dimensional screen space so mm. although that. when they do fall like when you really like knock them good uh sometimes they fall to their death to the this uh and there's spikes which is i always like that because it's like what you did is what killed him but then they're just like you killed him so bad that like now he's gonna fall into some spikes but I think the thing that they fall into might be shaped like an octagon, but I don't remember. It was a long time ago. All right. Well, either way, in Moving Beyond Love, sonnets can be about a bunch of stuff. We've kind of already covered that a little bit in some of the earlier episodes, bringing in particularly more contemporary sonnets. We had part of Eduardo Corral's Border Triptych. We talked about one of Terence Hayes' poems from his entire book of sonnets but even many many years before those which are kind of like contemporary sonnets there's a bunch of sonnets that engaged with the kind of political events of the day 
or commented on major world historical happenings that were not however much you know an individual's love life may feel like a world historical happening that's real um these are like there's a war going on or there's a revolution or uh i'm in danger from existing uh those are pretty common themes in what we might call political sonnets but it's not just political it's just using the sonnet form to do a lot more than talk about love or a particular version of love um, and there's a lot of different examples of that and we've pulled out a couple and uh you know we're gonna we're gonna get stuck in as they say in england <laughs> do they say that in england yeah get stuck into it like what does that mean just what do you like, get stuck into get started doing something oh just like really take it on anyway sonnets <laughs> <laughs> sonnets we love them but they're not always about love um and we should say you know we're we're the ones we'll be talking about we'll jump forward a bit in time but um it's something that you know was has been going on for a while you know john milton famously wrote a lot of sonnets and he he was a, around in like the early 1600s i think um and he wrote many you know occasional sonnets uh some political sonnets so it's definitely been happening um for a long time um but um i think the the true range that the sonnet can capture really gets going i think uh, the closer we get to the present so yeah the balance just seems to start shifting over time you know it's it's there a little bit and then as time goes on you know 80 20 30 70 it moves it takes up more space in the sonnet realm yeah. um so yeah i mean one of the there's kind of this iconic little set of sonnets that for instance wordsworth just uh, to pull one name. Yeah, we got the fanfare back from episode one. All right. Ah, love it. Fun fact. <gasps> I have been to Tintern Abbey. Woo, Connor. Which was the subject of one of his most well-known poems, even though he doesn't really talk about the Abbey, but he's around the Abbey. Um. As were you, as was I, Stratton over here, <laughs> Globetrotter Connor. Yeah, a little literary tourism. That's very cool. Um, but yeah, so in August and September of 1802, kind of uh, a lot of the sonnets responding to major world events of the time, which is getting into like tail end of the French Revolution and Napoleon's coming around again. Uh, he writes this set of like 25 sonnets. Um, it is believed because his sister had been reading him uh, Milton's sonnets, and then he got inspired by that and wrote a bunch of his own. And many of those were about what he was experiencing, influenced by the events of the time, which is kind of notable. I didn't really realize that he had had that little spate of sonnets until we were researching for this week. Yeah, no, I actually wasn't of that as well i knew that he he wrote a lot about sort of international events and issues and thought about that but i didn't i didn't realize um no, i didn't realize that it's really interesting yeah and he'd like 
you know, he had a lot of kind of personal connections to France. He'd been there before. He had a lot of feelings about the revolution and also France itself and his own time there. And so it makes sense that he was writing about it. But I, yeah, I had not realized that it was kind of sonnet time in, <laughs> in the late summer and early fall of 1802. Another kind of major person, a, another instance of like a bunch of sonnets about a single thing um, is John Allen Wyeth, who, if you Google that name, you will find uh, a dude who fought for the Confederacy. This is not him. This is his son. Um, and he fought in World War One. John Allen Wyeth, the poet, not the, you know, battlefield surgeon for the Confederacy. Um, and he is kind of America's war poet from World War One. Obviously, there's a bunch of names associated with war poetry, especially from England, like Siegfried Sassoon. But John Allen Wyeth is kind of the American war poet. And he wrote his war poetry in the form of sonnets. Uh, and he had a book that came out in 1928 called This Man's Army, A War in 50-Odd Sonnets. And there's some really fascinating ones from a formal perspective in there because he does play around a little bit with like line breaks within the 14 lines and interact and like interjecting bits of dialogue in certain ways. Um, but the one that I thought we would sort of look at a little bit here is the road to Corby and, and Corby is like a little town in Northern France. And this is um, a, he's got several sonnets that are sort of like this, like, well, we're going from one place to another. Um, but I think it's really interesting because this is an example of a sonnet being used for pretty straightforward descriptive purposes in a way that we definitely haven't talked much about in the previous weeks, because even in the more contemporary ones, um, the closest would be something like the first border triptych poem, which is describing an experience, but this is kind of putting you in a scene and telling you about what's going on um, in a different sort of way. And certainly very different from some of the poems that we were talking about just in the previous episode that are, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets about love, but also other poets who are doing kind of god love sort of work so this is this is like very earthly um which i thought would be interesting to to spend a little time with so this is the road to corby by john allen wyeth our staff car flies and trails a long spun haze over the looping road and the surge and fall of the heaving plains quick dusty tree trunks throw their flickering bars of shadow in our eyes a wood, men leading horses out to graze, a misty bridge, and past the lumbering crawl of crowded lorries, low hills all aglow with tufts of trees against the evening skies, and long blond hill slopes catching level rays along their quilted flanks, and under all the deep earth breathing like a thing asleep. And there, Corby, her brittle walls brought low, a brick-choked wreck in which her ruins rise like gravestones planted in a rubbish heap. Damn. Yeah. 
it's uh it's got a lot of different stuff going on the thing i particularly like is i think it very accurately for me captures that feeling of coming upon the town and you get a sense of time passing on the road through the way the description happens because the description kind of stacks up different discrete things but you can also feel the mind of the describer leaving wherever they are to go and be with the things that they're seeing so that you get increasingly quote-unquote poetic descriptions of stuff like low hills all aglow with tufts of trees against the evening skies but then it starts getting you know under all the deep earth breathing like a thing asleep like you can feel the mind of the writer going to this place as they observe the countryside and then and there corby like interjects the town and the wreckage that has been wrought upon it so not only do you get the sense of coming upon the town but you get this idea of the time that it took to get there both the slog but then also the internal work of the poet's mind a little bit yeah it's a really wonderful poem um and it's such a good um i'm just like thinking of our our last episode um this one is is probably shakespearean ish um it doesn't have the rhyme scheme like strict um or even i'm not even exactly sure if it has a particular there are some rhymes but um the yeah it's what is it a b c d a b c d a b e c d e mm. is the rhyme scheme i think interesting yeah so it's four four three three sort of and you get the introduction of the e in those you know it could be divided up four four three three basically and just in terms of how its rhyme scheme is working yeah that's really interesting um yeah so you can kind of see how there's there's a bit of shakespearean and maybe a bit of petrarchan um happening um which is which is cool because they both do different things. I also love I just love the line the deep earth breathing like a thing asleep. Um, and it's such a I mean to me like part of the real power is this this almost hyper pastoral beauty that he's seeing that then is put in stark contrast to, to Corby itself. In terms of like the turn and the Volta, um, it starts happening really in the um, like, and there Corby. Um, so it's, it's, it's not quite like the closing couplet turn, I guess, but there is this, you know, rather than, you know, we talked about like the the Petrarchan with the eight line octave and then the turn and then the six, um, the Shakespearean with the the twelve lines of three quatrains. This has basically those three quatrains pretty, um, pretty much, and then the last couplet does really like bring it home in a way, even though it sort of starts in the 
like 11th line perhaps. Yeah, so it, it works in terms of like that sonnet form. I feel like the, the leaning towards the Shakespearean Volta really works well because you have this, this long trek and this like lots of description of, of where you're going and all that stuff. And then, and then the startling kind of ruin of Corby. Corby's like three lines basically. And there Corby, her Brita walls brought low, a brick choked wreck in which her ruins rise like gravestones planted in a rubbish heap. Yeah, which is sort of marvelous. Um, and devastating and the sounds are wonderful especially you know brick choked wreck with those all of a sudden so it's so sharp yeah very sharp it's got those like you know um three stresses in a row it really makes you stop you know um like brick choked wreck and then the image, the next image itself is really interesting, which in which her ruins rise like gravestones planted in a rubbish heap, where like the the town's ruins are like gravestones, which are like kind of plants put into a rubbish heap. <laughs> yeah, like any two of those would be enough. <laughs> Yeah. But you've got you've got extras so they can all bounce around because it would be like gravestones in a rubbish heap is like, whoa, okay. Yeah. yeah. Or planted gravestones, like, woo, all right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um and it and it I do feel like it works well with you know, it 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 renders the ruins of the of the town in this kind of synthesized natural and man-made sense where they're both planted, but they're also in a rubbish heap. Um, and I feel like that works really well with just like everything we've been seeing before of, you know, the heaving plains and the quick dusty tree trunks and all this natural stuff. So it makes sense that the town is still in that texture. And I do think it's interesting to have a sonnet and like a book of sonnets to describe the um, the war experience because so often in whatever medium is being used, the descriptions about before and after home and away, there are so many really big components to the war experience that are explored in literature that are those deep structural divides in someone's life or just in experience that the sonnet does feel like a form that is well suited to that because it is a you know as we've talked about before if it is a box of a form it is a box built in such a way as to hold two things really well um, and to kind of put them into conversation with each other and to put them into relationship with each other via the volta so i think that's another element where you can feel the form in this really working well yeah, no, absolutely. That I feel like that leads well into um, the other poem that we were thinking about um, for this one, which is another, a jump forward in time. Um, and yeah, this one is, I don't know, it's, it's a really interesting poem um, and very devastating. 
Uh, it's called it's called Barracks Home. It's by um, Toyo Suyamoto. Um, and it's about um, she she was a, a Japanese American poet and um, this one is about the um, the internment the internment camps um, that uh, yeah FDR <laughs> um, did in World War II. Um, yeah, and just the um, the sheer scale of it is just truly an atrocity. Um, but there was a forced removal and incarceration of some 120,000 um, Japanese American people on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, yeah, it just very American racist shit. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I, I came across this poem actually, we'll link to this, but um, there was a recent New York Times piece where a few poets for National Poetry Month uh, picked a few poems um, that they were thinking about for like the current moment and um, and the uh, the the great poet Paisley Rectal had picked this poem. Um, you can hear Paisley Rectal read at the Unamuno <laughs> Author Festival over on Poetry Spoken Here, our sister podcast, a reading which includes, and we'll probably talk about this in our last episode of the week, a couple of anagrammatic sonnets. So definitely check it out if you're interested in more experimental sonnet form work stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's very cool. Check it Hell out. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll link to the this and she I'll I'll read some of what Rectal wrote about, it, but there's also like a video that was that was made for each poem. Um anyway, I'll I'll read it and then we can we can talk more about it. Um this is Barracks Home by Toyo Suyamoto. This is our barracks squatting on the ground, tar papered shacks partitioned into rooms by sheetrock walls, transmitting every sound of neighbor's gossip or the sweep of brooms the open door welcomes the refugees. And now at least there is no need to roam afar. Here space enlarges memories beyond the bounds of camp in this new home. The floor is carpeted with dust, wind-borne dry alkali patterned with insect feet. What peace can such a place as this impart? We can but sense, bewildered and forlorn, that time, disrupted by the war from neat routines, must now adjust within the heart. Hmm. Yeah, that I believe you referred to it as devastating, which feels 
accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, the open door welcomes the refugees is a line that sticks out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Just because it gets to the idea that is being corrupted in the creation of the camps, like very intensely gets into the fact that there's so much mythologizing in the American story about, oh, what does the country really stand for? And this isn't who we are when we do these things that are bad. Um, and it also just takes the idea that at some point you're being welcomed into these camps and it becomes also this like literal scorn to the fact that, you know, the reality of what is happening. Um, and it's just so plainly stated feel like that that line definitely sticks out yeah because it it's such a a cutting like irony but it's put so um yeah plainly and quietly um yeah it's not like a a super poetic line like dry alkali patterned with insect feet is a little bit more, you know, crafty. It's got alkali in it. It's got the insects. You know, it's got, it feels like it has more going on, but just the open door welcomes the refugees. is like, whew. Well, no, that's so right, because it's, it's, it gets its power precisely because it's so plain and because it's so part of the, um, like, American myth about itself that um you know out of context it's like a cliche that you would hear a politician say but in this context um saying it plainly and 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 letting the just yeah <laughs> the the total um emptiness of the idea in that moment um does all of the work um it's something where yeah the 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 context and the way it's used um it's sort of like sometimes i think you know, the, the, if you, I, I now will set up a, a crude binary for effect. Um, if you have familiar reality and uh, unfamiliar reality, and then you have familiar language and unfamiliar language, um, something like the, dry alkali patterned with insect feet um in some ways is sort of a familiar image of like you know it like got the insects going everywhere and there's the dust and um it's not like a particularly like you know you're not going to the grand canyon you know it's it's 
um, a dusty room uh, with bugs. <laughs> and, um, but it's, so it's a familiar site, but the, the language is unfamiliar and that's kind of what gives it its power in that moment in some ways. Um, and, the, and the contrast between the language and between like the language being unfamiliar and the image being familiar, um, the tension between those two things, I think gives it some of its power. And then sort of by contrast, um, this, I mean, uh, things like this, America, you know, has done <laughs> many horrible things, but I think especially for um, the people who were incarcerated and displaced into these camps, the whole idea of it would be so jarring and alienating and displacing and unfamiliar. Like, you know, I am <laughs> like an American citizen and my own country, um, like just rounded me up for no other reason than um, like my ethnicity and my race. Um, and so using the most like over familiar language in that instance, um, I think like helps create such a power for this totally unfamiliar situation in a way. Um, okay, I have set the binaries up and now they are collapsed again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's something that kind of echoes through the poem in different ways, particularly when it comes to a close, because you're talking about routines must now adjust within the heart. And so you have this disruption of your life, but then what does that mean for who you are going forward? And both as an individual and also as you go forward out of the poem, you know, we talked a little bit about how Monica Yoon talks about time working in sonnets, but just time in general working as you're reading a piece. When you come to the end of the poem, you go on, what is it leaving you with? And what it's leaving you with is this idea about rearranged routines or adjusted routines within the heart. What adjusts in you after this happens? And what, what happens to the you that leaves the internment camp. How do you feel living in the country that could do that to you? That's something that is probably forever adjusted within the heart. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because um, the sentence and the lines are very strange in, in a cool way in this poem, but I think that um, it's time itself that's being adjusted perhaps where, or at least that's one reading where we can but sense bewildered and forlorn. So that's like its own thing. So we can but sense that time. And then there's this comma and a clause. Time which has been disrupted by the war from neat routines. Um, and then we end the clause must now adjust within the heart. Um, so without the clauses, I think you could read it like we can but sense that time must now adjust within the heart. Um, but the the word routines is heavily enjammed 
Um, and so it appears on the last line with routines must now adjust within the heart. Um, and, and obviously time and routines in, in a way are quite related. Um, but it's also this tough double disruption, right? Where the war itself is already thrown, um, I'm sure everyone at that time into a totally new way of life, you know? Um, I mean, the draft was in place. There yeah. was every chance that someone you knew was serving or was going to get called up to serve over the course of the years that the war was happening. Like it, it was the thing that was going on and it was huge for almost everyone from 1941 until 1945. And then even after that, because such a huge number of people returned from the war <laughs> forever changed, even though there's not as much discourse about you know PTSD but uh, I don't know if you heard the Oscars happened um, <laughs> however I mentioned this because in 1946 the movie the best years of our lives won best picture and it is a movie about veterans returning from war and the challenges that they face in doing so so it's not like this was unknown it's not like it was not even like in culture it was it was something that was going on across the entire country um yeah so yeah, yeah it, it's yeah i i reaffirm what you are saying about the vast <laughs> impact of world war ii shocking <laughs> shocking historical insights here from you know 2021 world war ii <laughs> a, big, a big deal <laughs> even in america insulated as it was by oceans it was yes. still a big deal here <laughs> the uh, ap u.s history question is to what extent was world war ii a big deal <laughs> that's the dbq kids <laughs> i also want to read just what uh paisley rectal wrote she wrote like two paragraphs and i um it also touches on the fact that it's a sonnet um but i think she puts a lot of things really well that um yeah i was struck by how um toyo suyamoto's poems felt so quiet considering the pain and anger she felt at being incarcerated in topaz utah during world war ii but her poetry is also very pointed a careful listener will note that barrack's home is a sonnet Suyamoto's formal choice is, I think, a dig at the fears that U.S. politicians had about Japanese and Japanese Americans, that they weren't culturally assimilable. The sonnet form shows that she has mastered the highest literary traditions that mark the West, but her subject matter reminds us of how she and other Japanese Americans have now been cast out of this culture into a new bewildering and utterly hostile environment whose, quote, open door welcomes refugees, a place that itself mocks the idea of home and the promise of America, um, which, yeah, ends kind of with kind of the point we were talking about. Um, but it also sort of reminds me of the 
sort of what we were talking about a little bit in the Shakespeare episode where this idea of English empire and um, American empire as it, as it translates that the sonnet has this, you know, um, imper imperial prestige to some extent that um, like Suyamoto is like employing as a way to sort of <laughs> both be like, I can do it if I want to, you assholes. Um, and also I'm gonna, you know, like <laughs> use it to show how horrible you are basically um, and your, your whole ideological project. Um, so I, I thought that was a really interesting, especially, you know, when we get to, you know, the, the mid 1900s the form is no longer just a set of formal parameters. It is like a thing itself that like when you do it, you're sort of, you know, you're drawing on some aspect of that tradition and history and connotation and stuff. Um, and so she, this sonnet like really uses that. Yeah, I just, I really liked thinking about it that way and I you know and it's 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 an interesting contrast to the the Wyeth poem which is all in movement and this one is so you know incarcerated so like this is our barracks um where we are uh and you know um but also like you know beyond the political is also the sonnet itself is now a thing that like has its own meanings. Um, and, and that also is beyond love to some extent. So, um, and I think like, you know, the Terrence Hayes American sonnets are also playing in that. And, and, and he, you know, it's like, I'm locking you in an American sonnet or whatever. Yeah. I just, I, I found that to be like a, a fascinating dimension. Absolutely. And it is true that I think a lot of the contemporary work being done in sonnets feels itself so necessarily in conversation with not just the sonnet as a form, but the sonnet as a vast literary tradition, that there is almost always some aspect of it that is referencing that. It doesn't necessarily have to be the primary thing that's going on, but it usually as you're saying with the Terence Hayes, like the to do a whole book of sonnets is a strong choice that's probably going to get addressed at some point. Yeah, and and um, this this one will really, I think, lead well into the tomorrow's episode. Um, yes, which sort of uh, it's probably U.S. pretty focused, um, but it's it's kind of looking at more like the scope of, of what happens with the sonnet uh, when it gets established in the States and, and beyond that. Yeah. And when it begins to get established for long enough that there are traditions that spring up around the sonnet outside of continental Europe or like Britain, basically, which are the two places that like you have the strong Italian history with the originators and with Petrarch and you have the Shakespearean 
uh, overlay from Britain, but the sonnet does go global and it's done that now long enough ago that there are other traditions that establish themselves in other places. And that's where we're going. We're going globe, globe hopping, globe trotting, like old globe trotting Stratton over here, <laughs> heading to temples and cathedrals and abbeys and, and seeing all the literary sites. We're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to travel by verse. Traveling by verse. Yeah, it's like traveling by map, like the Muppets, but with poems. <laughs> it's the Muppets that do that, right? They travel by map. I don't know, Jake. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossiter Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Close Talking. See you next time.